Hello, I'm Doug Lewin. Welcome to the Texas Power Podcast from Renewable Energy World. You're in for a treat with this episode today, which was with Tim Latimer, CEO of Fervo Energy. We go a lot of different directions in this conversation, including Tim's background in oil and gas, why he's based in in Houston, Texas, and the connections between the geothermal industry and the oil and gas industry. Tim is widely credited with reviving geothermal, particularly with a type of geothermal called enhanced geothermal systems. We'll get into the different types of geothermal energy and why it's so important to the energy transition to companies like Google that are trying to get to 24-7 clean energy. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Tim Latimer, welcome to the Texas Power Podcast. Thanks for being with us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while because I am so fascinated by geothermal, have been for, for a long time, back to my earliest days working on energy policy at the Texas legislature almost 15 years ago. But it does seem like we're we're at a moment, that the geothermal is having a moment right now, and you're right at the center of that. So really thrilled to be talking with you, and thanks for taking time. So we'll, we'll start with a little bit of your background and to tell us a little bit about Fervo Energy, the company that, that you lead. But if you don't mind, can we just kind of start for those that really just don't know anything about geothermal? And for those that do, bear with us. We won't spend a long time on this, but I think it's important just to kind of start with the at the very beginning, we do have folks that listen to the podcast that are interested in, in the grid and ERCOT after the, the grid problems of two years ago that maybe really don't know what geothermal is. Can you kind of just start with an, with an explanation from the highest level? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So at, at the highest level, the thing that to understand about geothermal is that the earth is really big and the earth is very hot. Uh, actually, you know, the core of the earth could be as much as 6,000 degrees Celsius and you know, it's not not quite that hot on the surface, but the deeper you go, the closer it gets to that temperature. And so uh, really throughout history, people have figured out ways to make use of that heat. You know, and uh, one of the ways that it comes to the surface is through hot springs. You can go back for, for you know, back in the ancient times and figure out people utilizing hot springs at the surface for, for different activities. And uh, but really what we consider geothermal electricity generation had its advent about 100 years ago in Italy, where there were, you know, big, big expressions of, of heat coming out of the surface through steam vents that uh, people realized that if you put the right equipment at the surface and captured that steam, you could create electricity from it. So the first geothermal producing power plant started about uh, 100 years ago. And, and the whole field of geothermal, it's all about using that heat uh, to, for, for useful purposes uh, in modern geothermal, what that typically means is that we drill wells down to access that heat, and then we circulate water through that hot water area. And if it's high enough temperature, we create electricity from it. Um, for lower temperature things, you can also do things like district heating or um, use that heat for agricultural purposes or other industrial applications. Um, but really, geothermal at the highest level is just using that heat of the earth uh, in in useful ways to create electricity or um or, or you get some other useful energy. And the, the key thing about it today that, that makes it of so much interest is, is the energy that's created from geothermal has two attributes that are very important. One is that it's both carbon free. Um, so it's a clean energy resource. It's a renewable energy resource that lasts for a long time. And the second is that it works 24 seven. So as we think more about uh, the grid mix and reliability and pushing for deep decarbonization and how we actually make that work, the fact that geothermal is a 24 seven resource 
is one of the things that's making it quite important as well. But that's the that's what geothermal is in a nutshell at the highest level. Appreciate that. Yeah. And we'll we'll talk about 24-7. I think the partnership y'all have with Google is 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 really fascinating. And we'll dive into that some in this podcast. I also just want folks to understand because a lot of times when you hear of geothermal, you might be hearing of um uh, ground source heat pumps. So cooling homes with geothermal. Your company doesn't do that, but that is it's sort of it's it's in this it's not in the same class. It's sort of in the same broad bucket of geothermal. But there you're just going a few feet down and tapping into the the temperature of the earth only a few feet down. Correct? Yeah, that's correct. And it's somewhat different principles. And and really, if you want to talk about categorizing geothermal, um, the shallowest geothermal is that ground source heat pumps. And what you're really doing is you're using a heat pump to heat or cool a space. And you're using the fact that. If you go down a few tens of feet into the earth, you actually don't have the major temperature fluctuations we have in the surface. So most places, uh, once you get down deep enough uh, in that, you know, tens of feet down, down, uh, the temperature is around 60 degrees Fahrenheit year round. So it makes it really efficient to heat in the wintertime and then really efficient to cool in the summertime. So that's your your smallest, you know, residential or commercial scale, really shallow ground source heat pump. Sort of the next jump up is what we call direct use, which is where you're drilling deeper, usually a few hundred or a few thousand feet deep um, to access resources that are hot enough to do things like provide district heating grids. And the distinction between ground source heat pumps and district heating is ground source heat pumps, you're just using that constant temperature for heat exchange to make more more efficient heat pumps, whereas in direct use, you're actually using the fact that that rock is hot. So it might be uh, a few, might be 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 200 degrees Fahrenheit, and you can use that to to create a district heating system, for example. Um, and then you have what my company does, Fervo Energy, which is drilled deeper to that into higher temperature resources. Um, you know, geothermal electricity generation can be anything from 300 degrees Fahrenheit to 700 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's high enough temperature that you actually get uh, really high energy content steam out of that and you can create electricity um, from the geothermal resource itself. So those are sort of your three buckets of uh, deeper geothermal, you know, going from shallower to deeper, you've got your residential scale ground source heat pumps, then you have your direct use category, and then you have your geothermal electricity generation category. And of, of course, you can kind of mix and blend all of those in complicated ways. But those are generally the three ways to think about geothermal. No, that's super helpful. And I often get tripped up and confused. So that's a very useful classification. I, but all I will say, yeah, our, go ahead. our most common um, request on our website is if we can come to somebody's backyard and drill them a geothermal system for their home. And, and I always, so pub, public great. service announcement. Yeah. Do, do not right. ask Fervo energy to drill in your backyard. They, I'll, they I'll put in a plug for a cool company that I know, uh, you know, Dandelion energy was a Google X spin out. They're one of the technology leaders in the geothermal heat pump space. So I talk, I typically refer people to that, uh, you know, our wells, we drill 10,000 feet deep, you know, not the kind of thing we're going to do in, in your backyard. We build, you know, power plants that are on the size of powering, you know, small, small cities. Um, so very different technologies. I'm a big fan of ground source heat pumps, but it's quite a bit different from geothermal power generation in terms of the scale and, and where we sit on the spectrum. Excellent. And all in that category of there's a lot of energy in the earth and it is a resource that we can tap. It is a renewable resource. So let's let's do, obviously, uh, pardon the pun, drill down deeper into EGS. And because it is a it is very interesting as a drilling technology, a lot of overlap between the expertise in the oil and gas industry in Texas and other places um, for this for this kind of uh, resource. So let's talk a little bit about um, 
first of all, um, your background, and then secondly, uh, the company and, and sort of the roots of the company and where you guys are at right now. So you came to this space from oil and gas, correct? You worked in the oil and gas industry for, for a number of years. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how, how that sort of led you or what the connection was to, to get into geothermal. So I'm from Texas. I grew up in Texas. And then I went to the University of Tulsa and studied mechanical engineering there. Uh, and so I graduated in 2012. Um, and it was right at the, the height of the shale revolution when um, it had become clear that, you know, technologies like horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing were totally upending what could be done from a domestic energy production standpoint in the U.S. And, and I joined up with uh, BHP Billiton uh, based out of Houston. Uh, there as a drilling engineer. Um, and I was working typical early career drilling engineer role out in the field, being an on-site engineer for, for our drilling operations in South Texas. And um, I, it, I was working in Eagleford and Eagleford in terms of an oil and gas resource uh, actually has temperatures that are slightly higher temperature than your average oil and gas um, uh, basin. And as a result, you know, we were dealing with some drilling challenges that we thought were related to these high temperatures. So it caused me to do some research into high temperature drilling to look for solutions. And every paper that I found on how to overcome high temperature drilling came from this field called geothermal. And I had never heard of geothermal at that point in my life. Um, uh, it's not a, it was not a huge industry then. You know, it's not really on everybody's roadmap, uh, but I became fascinated by it. And um Around the same time, you know, you were starting to see things like the, uh, you know, the major one in a hundred year floods that have now happened with quite a bit of frequency in Houston. So I had always been quite interested in climate change. And I think some of the you know personal impact of seeing things like, uh, you know, once in a hundred year flood happen consistently in, in, in Houston around that time period really sort of motivated me to get more interested in climate change. And, and so as I started thinking about moving my career in a direction that's focused on uh, clean energy and climate solutions. Um, I just became ecstatic when I learned that there was an entire realm in the world of renewable energy that relied completely on uh, drilling technology to be successful. And, and uh, as a drilling engineer, I found that quite appealing. So um, yeah, it was about 10 years ago that I really became quite obsessed with geothermal and and uh, really saw it as a really interesting way for for me to move my career as a drilling engineer, you know, into the clean energy sector. Yeah, exciting. And I think there's a, a ton of potential. I, I assume you agree, but certainly tell me if you don't for folks that are in the oil and gas industry. And it's not even necessarily, I think sometimes people forget what the word transition when we talk about energy transition means. It doesn't mean like, you know, tomorrow everything changes, but there's even opportunities for folks in the oil and gas industry to still be in the oil and gas industry, but work on geothermal on some sites and get some additional skill sets and kind of go go back and forth, no? Absolutely. And I think, you know, maybe to fast forward the story a little bit, I'll talk about in particular some of our oil and gas industry partners that have been a huge part of this journey. Uh, that realization, you know, the more I looked into geothermal, the more I also realized that there had been this big technology gap um, between all of the innovation that occurred that made... Um, oil and gas drilling so efficient that it took off this massive shale revolution that really caught everybody by surprise and made yeah. the United States the leading producer of oil in the world. And, and um, you know, it was a true technology innovation story. Well, you know, I started looking at the geothermal sector 
the geothermal sector is sort of, um, you know, it's much smaller, uh, obviously. It's overlooked, um, doesn't get the same attention as oil and gas does often. And, and what I found was that even though there'd been this tech revolution in how we drill wells and, and the oil and gas world, that really none of that technology had been applied to geothermal. Um, most of the geothermal drilling projects were using very outdated drilling rigs. You know, there was no software, there was no automation, there was very little directional drilling. So I saw a big opportunity to, to bring, you know, these, these what were really brand new technologies in the early 2010s um, uh, to the geothermal sector. So I quit my job in 2015. Um, I went to Stanford. I pursued my MBA there. I also got my master's degree in the School of Earth Sciences. And I really spent my whole time there pursuing this idea of, um, you know, how would you take technology that had been developed and innovated quite recently in the oil and gas space and apply it to geothermal, you know, in an adjacent sector, but it has some differences. And quite fortunately for me, uh, you know, I got uh, to work quite a bit with the Stanford Geothermal Research Group, where they've got a wonderful um, geothermal uh, division at Stanford. And my co-founder and our CTO had just finished his PhD there, um, working on novel uh, reservoir and production methods for geothermal. Um, and we hatched the idea to who, to who was that Tim? That we've now, uh, Dr. Jack Norbeck is his name. He's our co-founder and CTO for well. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we launched this idea in 2017 and formed Fervo and, uh, um, we, um, really formed it around this idea that, uh, drilling had gotten a lot more efficient and cheaper. And so we could bring horizontal drilling to the geothermal space. Um, the second is that the same way that there's, there's flow rate challenges in the oil and gas world that were solved with multi-stage well stimulation uh, for, for shale, we could, we could bring that to the geothermal world as well so that we could very consistently create, you know, highly productive, high flow rate wells, um, incorporating horizontal drilling and multi-stage well completion, uh, and, and then also bring in modern data sets like um, distributed fiber optic sensing, which is a technology that we do quite a bit of work on. Um, to actually measure, understand, and optimize these projects faster. So that's what we did when we formed the company in, in 2017, and we've been at it for about five years. And, and I just wanted to provide a little bit of that background to talk about a, yeah. a couple things, uh, especially when we talk about the oil and gas transition. You know, we were fortunate. We founded the company when we were at Stanford, uh, and then we got a great grant, research grant from a program called Activate that allowed us to spend the next two years working at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, embedded inside their energy geosciences division to keep iterating on these projects. But whenever we um, wrapped up our two-year program there, we actually opened a Houston office. I relocated back to Texas, and um, and our, our headquarters now and our biggest office is in, is in Houston. And the reason for that is um, whenever you think about sophisticated drilling and geologic um, uh, technology and 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 particularly the engineering skill set to do it, you know, there's no better place in the world to locate that talent and to find those partners than in Houston. Um, and so um, the majority of our team is actually folks we've hired from the oil and gas industry. We also, on the commercial side, and I'm happy to talk about this, have hired a lot of folks from wind and solar companies that have experience in development there at a much larger scale than what Geothermal's done before. So we talk about our team always in terms of how do we bring the best technologists from the shale revolution together with the best developers from the renewable industry all on one team to solve these challenges. And so that's what we do. We have an office in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. We've got an office in Houston, and we really work together across that. But, you know, it is really important for me personally to see this as an energy transition 
solution. You know, I started my career in oil and gas. I have tremendous respect for the people that I work with in the oil and gas industry. And for me, this is a really big part of it. I, you know, I found once people realize that their skills can apply um, in a new type of uh, energy generation in the clean energy transition, they get a lot more excited about it. So everything from hiring folks to who we partner with, you know, we're really fortunate at Fervo to count among our investors, for example, um, Helmer and Payne, which is the largest drilling contractor in North America, um, has and, and, and leading technologists in the oil and gas sector is an investor in Fervo. Liberty Energy, who's the largest well completion and pressure pumping provider in North America, is an investor in Fervo. And so really, it is truly about finding cross collaboration with the oil and gas sector um, and particularly oil field service companies to bring these technology solutions to geothermal systematically. It's it's really uh, impressive uh, and fascinating. The, I've, I've heard you speak before about one of the innovations that Fervo uh, has brought is this. So basically taking what you were just talking about a little bit there, and let's go a little bit further into it, the, the horizontal drilling, that one of the biggest risks in geothermal, similarly in oil and gas, is spending the money to drill and then coming up dry in the case of oil and gas, or I guess cold in the case of <laughs> geothermal, like um, yep. not, not, not getting to heat. Um, so what, what y'all have done, if I understand this right, is basically you're, you're going down um, vertically, but then going horizontal. So that risk of not finding heat is, is, is much less. So you're taking this innovation from oil and gas and actually applying it to an emission-free power source. Yes, that's that's exactly right. Now, now, so I, you know, I mentioned before that geothermal, you know, has been around for over 100 years. That's when the first plant was built in Italy for geothermal. Um, <clears throat> and I also had mentioned that that we're really the forgotten renewable. You know, there's not a lot of attention historically that's been paid to geothermal. You know, and so you you may wonder why why is there a resource that's been around for 100 years? It's virtually limitless. It's 24 seven. It's carbon free. Um, you know, it kind of checks all the boxes. Why is that not taken off? And, and really, it's come down to a question of cost. And it's come down to a question of technology not being able to keep up with, um, with the resource as we've had to, had to drill deeper and deeper to find the right geothermal. So, um, you know, that project in Italy that was developed 100 years ago, they were able to develop it because the steam was literally coming out of the ground at the surface. Um, there's not that many places in the world that look like that. And, and, um, you look at the big projects for geothermal, you know, where the industry really took off was in the 60s and 70s. Um, and those were in a lot of power plants developed in Northern California and in New Zealand and then Iceland, you know, places that have really naturally occurring ultra high temperature um, geology very close to the surface. Now, what's happened in the sector is as those resources were drilled out, and, um, you know, we ran out of these really limited number of ultra high temperature, very shallow resources the industry had to drill deeper and deeper and, and try to find more systems that weren't as easy to spot. And um, that's a really tough technical challenge. Um, and so all of a sudden, if you have to drill 10,000 feet deep instead of 3,000 feet deep, that's difficult. And if you have to drill into an area where you're just guessing geologically that there may be a good heat resource instead of being able to see you know, steam literally coming out of a surface vent, um, that's a lot more difficult to hit. And so... As we moved away from these world-class resources like the geysers and projects in New Zealand and Iceland to deeper and deeper resources, the technology didn't keep up with that challenge. And so it became that cost prohibitive. And really the main issue um, 
And one of the big challenges when you look at geothermal compared to wind and solar, you know, you can actually download, for example, from from NREL a pretty good insulation map that tells you exactly how much sun, you know, within some range of uncertainty is going to hit a spot anywhere in North America. So it's quite easy to predict what your output's going to be. Um, the geothermal resource is two miles beneath the surface of the earth. We have some guesswork about where it is, but ultimately you've got to drill it uh, in order to figure out where that is. So there's just a little bit more risk in what you have up front. And then historically, the way geothermals worked is you've drilled purely vertical wells um, and left them with very simple well completions. So you drill these wells down and, and uh, I think a lot of people don't quite, so, so just to talk about how, how geothermal works, you drill sets of injection wells and production wells. You pump the cold water down the injection wells. It has to flow through the geothermal reservoir to your production wells, and then it returns to the surface at high enough temperature that you can capture energy from it at the surface to create that electricity. Now, historically, you've been challenged because actually those wells are really only, you know, they're less than a foot in diameter. And so uh, for about one out of uh, three projects that people tried to drill for geothermal, they drill down. And, and you've got this well thousands of feet deep, only a foot in diameter, and actually doesn't hit anything that is commercially viable from a geothermal resource perspective. And so the challenge has always been drilling is expensive. It could cost you $5 million plus to drill that well. And one out of three times you come up with nothing, you know, you really can't really scale, scale that as a, as a resource in the very competitive power markets. And so if you want to scale geothermal, the problem that you have to address is how repeatable it is. You can't afford to drill a bunch of wells that don't actually produce anything. So the innovation that Fervo has worked on is rather than drilling vertical wells, we drill deep and then we drill horizontal wells. So our production and injection wells aren't next to each other vertically. They're actually stacked on top of each other horizontally. So we'll drill 10,000 feet down, we'll drill 5,000 feet horizontally, and we'll place these wells a few hundred feet apart from each other. And that way you're actually not just trying to find that resource with you know maybe a seven inch pipe in the subsurface, but I've got over a mile at which I can access that subsurface. And it turns out that whenever you do that, you're able to overcome a lot of these um, you know, hit or miss qualities of geothermal and create a resource that consistently um, delivers you know, across a very wide set of geologies. So what we're doing is actually opening up, uh, there's, there's really one, one main thing that we're doing, and that's increasing the hit rate and consistency of geothermal drilling. And that has a consequence of allowing us to get on a learning curve, to plan out large scale projects in a way that the geothermal industry hasn't before, and really bring on much larger scale resources in geologies that wouldn't have been economically viable um, previously. And, and that's the main innovation. And, and really the beauty of what we're doing too is we can move extremely quickly to market because I don't have to invent, and Fervo as a company doesn't have to invent every single technology solution from scratch to make this work. It's really about how do we tap into the skill set and already existing tools and equipment of a very sophisticated and technologically advanced oil field service industry and get them to work in a new way for our projects. And, and so that's really what we're doing at the end of the day. So I want to talk a little bit more about the, the resource, and we will put in the show notes a link to a fantastic podcast that Dave Roberts at Volts did with, with Wilson Ricks of Princeton Zero Lab. I would encourage people to listen to that. They went deep on this. We're not going to go super deep on this, but but I think it's a really important point, especially this is the Texas Power Podcast. There's a lot of discussion in Texas right now around uh, dispatchable resources. 
I think actually sometimes too much, not that dispatchability is not important, but I think sometimes we're also not talking about flexibility and having those flexible resources. So, so you know, on this podcast, we've talked with previous guests. Um, Pat Wood is an example about uh, energy storage. We've talked about demand flexibility and, and, and that resource. Geothermal has these properties and this potential of actually being a renewable resource that can actually be both dispatchable and flexible. I don't understand it super well, but I'm hoping you can help me and our audience understand it a little better. But the idea is basically right is you're 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 getting steam from deep down underground. You're you're heating up water to create electricity. You can manage that flow rate to to produce power at at variable rates on demand. So when you're when when maybe wind and solar are lower, you can sort of let some of that pressure and steam out and produce more power. And when you've got a ton of wind producing, you can kind of keep that underground a little bit more and hold it till you need it. Is that did I say that well? Help correct me where I got it wrong and, and maybe explain it better than I did. You, okay. You got it. You got it. And I and if you'll indulge me, I may back up a little bit and explain please sort of the market motivation and what's happening on on the power sector that actually makes this more important. Obviously, you know, like like a lot of people in Texas, um, uh, I lost power during the Texas freeze as well. And so I think that's one of these things that's vaulted um, reliability back into the energy conversation. You know, whenever you talk about um, energy, you're always talking about, you know, what can be clean, affordable and reliable. And, and it's really depending on whatever current events are happening. Those, you know, there, there's uh, the, there's a different order to be, depending on what's the priority there. And there's a couple things that happened, to the Texas storm being one of them, but then also the rolling blackouts that occurred in California in 2020. That's really put reliability back, uh, you know, to maybe being the first in that order of clean, affordable, reliable. And so, and so that's that's one of the things that's happening. Um, it's also a story too about our ramped up ambitions on decarbonization. You know, if you go back 10 or 15 years ago or 20 years ago, I guess, people were just starting to roll out renewable portfolio standards. Um, there were big questions about whether or not wind and solar and renewable resources could ever achieve 10% on the grid, you know, much less uh, more ambitious targets. Um, and so that was sort of where we started. And, and, and you don't really have to worry about a lot of these issues on variability or intermittency and other things whenever you're talking about a resource being uh, 10% of, of the grid. Um, but what happened, obviously, is, is wind and solar were quite successful. They got far cheaper, far faster than anybody envisioned. And so all of a sudden, the 10% renewable portfolio standard targets didn't look unachievable. They looked kind of mundane. And now we've seen many states, Texas being one of them, California being another, you know, really blow past that. Um, and, and that's really emboldened people to take the next step on decarbonization. And so a big trend we've seen in the market is rather than renewable portfolio standards be 10% or 20% um, in the last few years, we've seen people look at the success of wind and solar, look at how quickly we're decarbonizing the grid and ramp up those ambitions to be 100% um, uh, renewable energy or 100% clean energy. Uh, and that requires a very different set of tools than getting to 10%, right? And so if you want to talk about matching every single hour of the year with clean electricity, it's a very different problem than, you know, can we get 20% of our grid to be from renewables? And so, you know, Hawaii was the first state to pass this uh, 100% clean electricity standard, but then California did the same with SB100. 
And now I think there's, I lose count, 11 or 12 states that similarly have 100% renewable energy standards. And that's really forced people to look at the question again of not how do we get a little bit of our grid from renewable energy, but what kind of system as a whole can produce carbon-free electricity 24-7? And that has brought geothermal back into the conversation in a big way because we do have this attribute that is not true of wind and solar, that we do, can work 24-7, we can work on demand. Um, and so that's sort of our picture. And when you look at the studies on deep decarbonization, even with low-cost batteries, every study kind of comes up with the same result, that getting more than perhaps 60 to 80% of your grid from clean electricity um, in, uh, uh, in, uh, uh, requires you to get solutions that go beyond wind and solar and batteries if you want it to be cost-effective. So as we think about geothermal, what we what our company's mission is, is can we make geothermal scalable enough and affordable enough that we can be that missing piece, that 20% that allows a fully decarbonized grid? And that requires different ways of, of working. You know, So geothermal, much like wind and solar, shares some of the same attributes that um, they do, which is that you know it, we have no marginal cost. You know, it doesn't cost me any more money to run geothermal for the next hour. Um, you know, I'm not burning any fuel. It's a fuel-free resource. All the capital is kind of up front and building out the system, very similar to a wind and solar resource. Uh, and so historically, there's never been any reason to ramp geothermal up and down because it doesn't cost any money to, to run it from a marginal cost standpoint. Um, but it's never been a technical limitation for geothermal. Geothermal has always been able to ramp up and down as needed. And whenever you look at places like the Puna plant in Hawaii in, um, or in the country of Kenya, where 60% of the electricity comes from geothermal, those geothermal plants ramp up and down all the time because they're such a big part of the electric grid there that they have to. Um, so it's always been a, a feature of geothermal that it can ramp up and down and, and provide these extra grid services. Um, the podcast you're referring to, it's actually Wilson Rick, Ricks uh, at Princeton University is um, one of our research partners, actually, for an RPE grant we got earlier this year that we're quite excited about, a technology we call FervoFlex, um, is a little bit different. So historically, whenever people want to ramp down a geothermal power plant, what they've done is they've actually kept producing the wells, but then just bypassed the power station and allowed the power output to go down as a result. Whenever they want to bring it back on, they, they pipe the, the fluid flow back into the power station. And so that's how they've ramped up and down. We wanted to look at this problem a little bit differently. We're looking at the grid now and we're understanding, you know, for example, in the western parts of the grid that we work on, uh, quite regularly, um, daytime power prices are negative because there's so much solar on the grid. And so, you know, actually there is a reason to curtail and there is a reason to shift it around. And, and what we're scoping out and working on with Princeton is rather than doing the traditional way of, ge of geothermal ramping up and down where you um, uh, divert flow, um, around the plant, but keep producing the wells, could you actually shut the wells in um, or curtail flow for them during these really low cost times? You know, for example, during the daytime, whenever there's a lot of uh, solar production and, um, and use that to, throughout the day to build um, temperature and pressure in your geothermal reservoir so that when the sun sets, you can open those wells back up and actually get a, a period of, of boosted flow and shift that energy consumption and production from the daytime to the nighttime on solar heavy grids. And, and we're quite excited about this. And I can tell you a lot of our customers and RPE and the Department of Energy is quite excited about this as well. Um, and it's just one of the examples of a unique attribute that geothermal can provide to a, to a rapidly changing grid that 
that's quite important. What is the just rough order of magnitude of like what's the difference? Like if you're if you're if you're doing what you just described and reducing output in the you know say twelve one two p.m. But then you really need it at eight or nine once the sun is down. Is it like a two x flow? Is it three x or do we not know ten percent more, twenty percent more? Or do we not know? It's an interesting question, and this is actually kind of the scope of our research project with RPE. Is the project is not relying on anything that is um, is uh, the project is not relying on anything that's uh, you know hasn't been proven out or technically done or shown in the field. You can obviously build pressure in reservoirs. You can get periods of higher flow. The question is, how do you take those parameters and create a system that's optimized? And the answer is going to be different um, depending on on where you are. You know, on a solar heavy grid, it may make sense to take production to zero during the day or or even become a net energy consumer during the day and then really have boosted output during the um, during the evening hours. And so I think that's something, you know, you might have a different system. Then, for example, if you're if you're on a grid that might have a wind heavy system where what you're really trying to do is bank energy for a multi-day period of, of no wind sometime in the future. So it's all a systems design question. I think the thing that's quite exciting mm-hmm. about this system relative to, you know, some of the other things in the long duration energy storage space is that, again, this is something that's based off of well understood and longstanding principles of of how subsurface um, reservoirs work. And so, um, you know, really all those things can be done. If you read some of the publications we've done with Princeton on this, we've looked at everything from, you know, a four hour storage solution to a hundred hour storage solution and everything in between. So, so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, things to optimize within that. Uh, I have so many more questions, but we're going to keep moving. This is, this is so interesting. And I think so relevant to so many conversations going on all over the place, but particularly in, in Texas where, you know, you were talking about the renewable portfolio standard and I forget the year that the 10,000 megawatt goal, it was either 20, it was fast in 2005. And I think it was like a 2020, it might've been a 2025, whatever it was, it was a 10,000 megawatt goal. I think we're sitting here today with about 49,000 megawatts. So five X the amount, uh, roughly in the same, uh, time period. So it's, it's just an, an, an incredible, um, success for, for the state to have all of this, uh, wind and solar, the tax base, the jobs, the, the low cost power associated with that. And I really do think geothermal, you know, it'll, it'll take a while, but it's, it's coming next. This is the Texas power podcast. So let's talk about the, the resource potential within Texas. So you were talking earlier about your early experience um, working in the Eagleford, looking at the geothermal maps of Texas. It looks like that's a great area of resource and possibly East Texas as well. Um, you mentioned 10,000 feet. Um, the temperatures there are good, but do, do I guess two questions here. Do you have to go even deeper than that to get to the best resources or can you really hit a nice resource at 10,000 feet? Like how deep do you have to go to get to the really great resource and can you just talk about texas and what the resource looks like here maybe relative to to other places sure it's it's a great question and and actually i'm going to reference back to that framing i talked about earlier where you know the earliest days of geothermal you could do these projects because you just had these really high quality ultra shallow ultra high temperature resources um and then there's a cost curve and the whole question is always uh can you drill deep enough in a cost-effective manner to reach to reach the temperature you need and for an effective geothermal resource, you really need temperatures that are at least 300 degrees Fahrenheit, um, and you get much higher efficiencies the higher you go from there. So 
that's really what you're looking for is how deep do you have to drill to get to 300 and then the amount of power you can output from 400 degree resources is significantly higher than the, than you can get from 300. So it's not like 300 and you're good to go. It's you, you want to be able to get higher temperatures than that. And so the approach we've taken is we believe this is going to follow a, a learning curve. You know, we believe that as we scale and start drilling thousands of wells, this is going to get cheaper and cheaper. And so the problem statement we gave ourselves is where can we actually go and, and, and drill these resources in the most cost-effective manner today to capture those learnings so that we can iterate and design um, projects that are lower cost in the future. And for us, that's actually turned out to be in traditional basin range geologies in, in the Western U.S., and so our first project, um, you know, part of Google in the last few years has launched a very ambitious 24-7 carbon-free energy initiative where rather than averaging out their energy production over the year, they actually want to power every single hour of their data center operations locally with clean electricity. And that's a very, again, a very different problem statement than, than annually averaging it out. And so as part of that initiative, Google's looking deeply at geothermal. And, and we actually announced the deal last year uh, to do a demonstration project in northern Nevada, where we're drilling a set of wells for, for um, to power a Google data center there. So that's where our first large-scale project is. That project is going quite well. We're, we're advancing quickly there. Um, just this year, we've drilled the first uh, ever, the first two ever horizontal BP, horizontal geothermal wells ever drilled in the geothermal industry. And we're going to be putting that project online early next year. Um, quite excited about the technical results and our long-term partnership with Google there. And the reason Tim, we chose Tim, to go there. Yep. Just real quick, how deep do you go for those resources in California? Those are you're 8, not ten thousand feet. Eight. Those are okay. eight thousand feet deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. eight thousand feet deep, and we're close. We're getting really close to that. You know, sort of four hundred degree temperature range that that okay. you want to get. And so, yep. in our portfolio, the other area we've announced is a project in Central Utah um, that we're we're partnering with several power buyers in Southern California, and we're going to start drilling that project next year. Um, Again, a project where we can keep these relatively high temperatures at perhaps you know eight thousand feet, so relatively you know shallower than a lot of actually oil and gas wells, but still meeting the high temperature requirements we can. Now, our mission for this is that we've got uh, the potential to bring on gigawatts of electricity of that kind of shallow, shallower, high temperature resource in that basin and range area, and developing those gigawatts of electricity is going to require us to drill hundreds of wells in that area. And if you know, have followed the history of the shale revolution, you know, it was quite incredible just in the span of my career, short career with BHP Billiton, how much better and faster we got in a very short period of time. And so what happens is, is that the more you drill, the more you learn, the more you iterate, the more you come up with engineering solutions and design optimizations that allow you to go faster. And so you see costs start dropping precipitously as you really get the scale applying new drilling technology to resources. And so... If you look at what's going to happen as we scale there, all of a sudden you can start talking about drilling much deeper resources um, and still being cost effective. So ultimately, you know, every country in the world, every state in the United States is going to have something that um, meets our criteria in terms of cost and depth. If we can get the cost to, to compress enough. And so this sort of brings us to Texas. Texas has what I would call good but not great geothermal resources. You know, it's not going to be competitive with the most high temperature stuff in Iceland and California and New Zealand and Kenya. Um, but it's also much hotter geologically than other places. The whole reason I started this was because drawing high temperature wells in the Eagleford. But the temperatures, to get to the temperatures that we would like to see to have effective power production, it's a little bit, it's it's not quite eight or 10,000 feet. It's more like probably 13 to 15,000 feet. And they may not sound like a huge difference, but drilling costs go up exponentially as you try to get 
deeper. And so we think we can compress costs enough that we can access resources in Texas and really in places around the United States, um, you know, over the medium to long term. And that's really what at will get this to be a multi gigawatt, hundred multi hundred gigawatt resource in the United States. And that's really the prize we're after. Um, that's not to say that there's not creative ways and solutions to do it. You know, one thing, another Houston-based company that I encourage people to look at that we're big fans of is a company called Criterion Energy Partners. And they're actually looking at um, developing geothermal resources on the Gulf Coast today. And one of the things that's innovative about what they're doing is, you know, bringing smart drilling technology to the plate, to the table, but also looking at where are their big industrial consumers that can use both the electricity generation and the heat that they provide you know, on-site in one facility, and you can help your economics there quite a bit by by doing that. So there's going to be ways and in, in pockets in Texas, I think even today, where we're going to see economic geothermal electricity. I also think if you look at the technology cost curve that we're going to be on by the next decade, we're going to be talking about being able to bring on enormous amounts of electricity from geothermal in, 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 in Texas around the rest of the U.S. Um, so there's different ways to do it. I, I, I'm bullish, um, even though we're doing our first projects, in the Western U.S., in Utah and Nevada, and, and chasing after the best geology there, I'm quite bullish over the long term that we're going to see um, uh, projects done here in Texas as well. That 13, forgive my ignorance, the thirteen to 15,000 range you're talking about, it, the oil and gas drilling typically is not going that deep, right? It's, it's much shallower than that, yeah? Typically, no. But I think I'd say yeah. the thing about the oil and gas industry is it's a massive industry. There's been hundreds and hundreds of thousands of wells drilled. And so you can find, you know, all kinds of projects everywhere that, that have been drilled deeper than that. You know, that's, that's deeper than certainly the true vertical depth of a a South Texas or West Texas Permian or Eagleford well. Um, But it's definitely not unheard of in terms of the technology limitations. It's not, there's no, there's no fundamental technology limit that says you can't drill to 15,000 feet. It's just a question of, uh, if costs go up exponentially with depth, at, at what point are you bringing those costs under control enough that you can create electricity um, from a geothermal power plant in a cost-effective manner? So let's talk about that cost-effectiveness and some of the the market drivers here. So first of all, am I right that there was a change from the um, Inflation Reduction Act with the geothermal uh, investment tax credit and production tax credit? There, there was. So one of the big challenges for geothermal historically, uh, you know, when I say forgotten renewable, I mean that term in every sense. And uh, geothermal is often forgotten, for example, in, um, in, in the investment tax credit and production tax credits that other renewable energy resources receive. So I oftentimes get questioned, you know, why hasn't geothermal take off, taken off? And, and in a lot of ways, it's been a discrete policy choice to to not have geothermal take off, you know. So on the tax credit side, we don't get the same tax credits as the geothermal industry, as, as the other renewable industries get. Uh, but then even on the permitting side, you know, the Energy Act of 2005 um, put in a, a large number of categorical exclusions for oil and gas drilling on federal lands that allow much more streamlined development of uh, oil and gas drilling. Um, com- uh, uh, but that, that policy did not extend to geothermal. So geothermal has to go through a much longer and much more intensive permitting process than oil and gas wells do, um, even if it's a similar, quite similar well construction. So being forgotten hurts geothermal uh, in many policy ways. So we have to develop projects oftentimes that don't have the economic support that other renewables get, but then also don't have the permit um, streamlined support that fossil fuel projects get. So we kind of get the worst of both worlds. Um, we're, we're, we've you know embarked on a number of advocacy efforts to raise awareness of these issues. 
They've been somewhat successful, uh, I think, in the Inflation Reduction Act. One of the big things that is, that is exciting for us is, for the most part, not completely, but for the most part, we've finally been put on a level playing field with wind and solar from a tax credit standpoint. And and it's, it's set up in a structured way that it's actually going to maintain being on a level playing field for at least the next 10 years, which actually gives us some certainty around planning. Um, when geothermal was included in prior tax credits, um, it was hit or miss and never longer than the, you know 12 months. Um, and so really difficult to plan a business around that. And the IRA brings a enormous amount of certainty into the business for us. And is that, and that change begins in 2025 or is it, is it earlier than that? Uh, it begins next year, starting next year. Next year. Okay, great, great. Yeah. Um, so I think in 2025, it switches to like a technology neutral, right? So that, right. so that a lot of the gripes you hear from certain folks about the, incentives and subsidies for wind and solar um, is that it's, you know, picking winners and that kind of stuff. At this point, it's going to be if you don't pollute starting in 2025, if you have so gas with carbon capture, geothermal, so on and so forth, um, you would be eligible for either the ITC or PTC and you get to choose. That's right. That's right. And that that actually that transition to the tech neutral tax credit. And then and then when that sunsets is is what gives me the confidence to plan my business for the next 10 years, because we know there's going to be this discrete tax credit that geothermal is finally included in for the next couple of years. And we know we're going to be included in the tech neutral tax credit as it transitions to that a few years out as well. Yeah. And it's a, I believe it's 10 years or 75% carbon free or something like that, but whichever is the longer one. So hopefully we reach 75% carbon free much sooner, but it'll last 10 years. But if we don't reach that goal, it would actually extend. So that's a, that is a big change in the IRA. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the um, market dynamics here. So some of your earliest customers and, you know, announced um, projects, you've got two uh, projects in California, 120 megawatt, 140 megawatt. Congratulations on that big deal to get over that hump and get those PPA signed. You mentioned the partnership with Google on on 24-7. So a a question here about Texas. I'm wondering, well, maybe this is more a statement and you can comment or answer it or or not. But in in my view, it does look like, you know, in in a lot of the ways that um, Austin Energy and other munis, co-ops were market makers on, well, really Austin Energy in terms of wind. In the early days, I was as a resident of Austin 20 years ago, signed up on a wind choice, which I paid extra for at the time. But within a couple of years, as gas prices went up, I was paying less than everybody else. They conceivably could do something like that on geothermal and and, and be a market maker there. So I, I'm interested, like what, where, if you think that's a high potential area or other potential customers in, in, in Texas, maybe local governments, or, or if there's others that are sort of obvious candidates, and then would love to hear a little bit more about that partnership with Google. You mentioned just a few minutes ago the 24-7 uh, project they're doing, which I think is really intriguing. And I think that they are a market maker there. I think a lot of companies are go there, are going to go there. And just to help our listeners understand, you know, Google, I think like five years ago, said they were way ahead of their pace. They had already purchased 100% clean energy to offset all their usage. But it wasn't matched up to the time that they were actually using that power. And so this is one of the reasons they're really interested in geothermal. It is one of the main critiques of wind and solar is they don't don't necessarily match the demand. You can use demand flexibility. You can use storage. You can also use use geothermal 
to match that. So I'm interested, are you seeing others, you know, doing things similar to Google and trying to get into that? Is that, is, is this a, is this a one-off? Is Google really uh, unique here? Or do you think that that is actually going to lead to some broader market changes from other corporate purchasers? Yes. Yes, is the answer. I, and, and just to talk a little bit about, you know, scaling new technology in the power sector, um, it, it is difficult to, to get anything new in the power sector. And, and, and it's because you face this major chicken and egg problem. Um, you know, power buyers are notoriously risk averse. Um, and I think oftentimes wouldn't do anything differently if they weren't, if they weren't required to, you know, they, they get, they get to where they understand and trust ways of operating the grid and understand and trust different resources, um, and, and don't really want to change because, and to their credit, you know, it's their job to keep the lights on. And why would you want to add, um, any risk to that equation or uncertainty or complexity? And so the downside of that, of that risk aversion though, is it just makes it pretty much impossible for us to ever do anything new in the power sector. Um, and, you know, when we had conversations with customers when we were starting over and over again, what you hear is, yeah, you know, once you have a few plants that are up and running and we can examine the data, we'd be really excited to uh, do a deal with you. And it's like, OK, well, you know, how do you get a few plants up and running if, if no one's willing to, to buy it? And so oftentimes over and over again, you see there has to be some sort of external forcing mechanism to, to drive this. And that could be a private sector or a regulatory solution. So on the private sector side. Google did, it was in 2018, you know, traditionally what you had is this 100% renewable energy goal. And there's over 100 corporations that have signed up for this goal. Um, and it's basically been defined as can you buy enough wind and solar that at the end of the year, when you add up how much solar or wind you bought, um, doesn't matter where in the world it is or, or um, what time it was produced. And then you look at how much you consumed at the end of the year. If those two columns are equal, you say, great, I'm 100% renewable. On. Well, of course, anybody looking at that can realize that that's, you know, 100% renewable doesn't really mean you're powering your operations with carbon-free electricity. And so, you know, if the sun's not shining, the, those those operations are being powered with fossil fuel energy, just like everything else on the grid is. And so, um, you know, if you want to move to that next catalyst, you have to come up with a new standard. And there's now, uh, Google's led this effort with the 24-7 carbon-free initiative, but there's a UN compact on this. There's many other private sector companies that have signed up. And most of them have said, all right, we've, we've hit our 100% renewable energy goal, or we have line of sight to hitting that pretty quickly, you know, but what's next? We still, you know, we, we want to move beyond accounting and into the real world in terms of actually powering our operations with uh, clean electricity. And, and that has provided a catalyst, this more ramped up ambition. Um, and, and it's why we did the deal with Google. And, and as a private sector innovative technology company, you know, we need some sort of catalytic big customer to come through and say, yeah, we understand the value of this long term. We're going to partner with this company to work through all the issues of it to, to get this onto the grid. So Google's played that role for us, and it's been tremendous. That's an example of sort of a private sector-led initiative that helps catalyze new technology and solves that chicken or egg problem. Um, the other thing that's been interesting for us is a regulatory change. You know, I mentioned before how important reliability is in grid planning now, and it's always been important to grid planners, but is, is, it, is, it, is it the biggest priority is always the question. Uh, and the rolling blackouts that occurred in California in 2020 were a huge wake-up call for grid operations. Um, and what you'd see in the grid operations there for, for years is all the different power buyers, the load-serving entities in California. Everyone recognized the need for more clean, firm power on the grid, but everybody just said, well, yeah, somebody else will buy it, right? And so there wasn't 
anybody stepping up and playing that role. And so the California Public Utility Commission said that those rolling blackouts in 2020 were enough of a wake up call that we weren't going to let everybody sit around and say, oh, huge problem here. Somebody else will solve it. And, and so they actually required all the different power buyers to have some skin in the game. So there was a ruling that came out last year in California called the California Public Utility Commission midterm reliability ruling that required a specific amount of, of reliable capacity to come onto the grid. And there was a carve out within that for long lead time resources that were for specifically clean firm resources that could operate 24 seven. And of course, geothermal is the, by far the best solution at that. So we quickly went from an environment where everybody said, well, obviously we're big fans of geothermal, but go, go sell it to somebody else to everyone having to be required to buy some geothermal in the state. And that's created this huge catalyst for the sector. And that procurement order was a thousand megawatts and a thousand megawatts is really important because that's enough to allow our industry to scale, come down that learning curve, prove out these new technologies in the field. And we're in this big renaissance right now for geothermal in part because California has stepped up and, and solved this chicken and egg problem in a really important way. And so that's been really big for, for, for the industry. Um, uh, and it's a model we can see, you know, being done in, in other states, uh, around the country too. You know, one of the challenges we have with, with geothermal is the lack of public awareness on it, right? So like you see these solar choice programs or wind choice programs and you see people opting into that. A lot of people don't know about geothermal. So like, you know, are you gonna get consumers to understand the value of it? That's a public awareness thing. So, you know, I think there could be a huge role for somebody like Austin Energy to play in the future to catalyze geothermal, but it, it, you know, we need to make sure we're, we're raising awareness about geothermal so that people actually understand, you know, this is every bit as important as wind and solar. And in fact, even more so, because this is going to be that critical piece that allows us to, to, to keep the, the lights on 24-7. Yeah, quick plug for the Texas Geothermal Energy Alliance and the a previous podcast I did with Barry Smitherman, the chairman and president of that organization. They're working to, to raise that um, awareness as well. Um, so just, um, I think just two more questions and then we'll go ahead and, and, and end. Um, one, um, so we're, we're at, at this will be released later, but at the time we're talking, it's quite cold in Texas, going to get a lot colder. You've talked about geothermal being 24 seven resource. Is there any sort of like, uh, drop off in production in extreme cold, extreme heat or other kinds of, uh, extreme weather? Um, you know, are there D rates associated with it? Like what's talk, talk to me about how, how it performs in extremes. Yeah, so um, it does great in extreme cold weather. I mean, Iceland is is notorious for being the big geothermal um, country, uh, and and in fact, um, it's a great complement for cold weather. You know, geothermal efficiency actually goes up with the colder the temperature is, and it goes down huh. in, the, in the hotter times, which historically has been a big challenge for the grid. But now solar's gotten so cheap that there's recognition that those really hot summer days are going to be met with solar pretty much every grid in, in the world, and so really the big planning issue, you look at this, I mean, Texas is a prime example. Um, you know, Texas is known typically for our hot summers, uh, not, you know, but even in Texas, uh, the most acute grid planning need is moving to the wintertime. Um, and so what we're seeing is there's a huge effort, you know, it's very important for there to be a, um, a resource that works in cold weather temperatures. And so the fact that geothermal works so great and actually increases output and improves efficiency in the wintertime is becoming a big boost and plus for the resource. Um, and so that's something that, um, you know, we're looking at geothermal, one is a great reliability resource, but then also 
a great paired hybrid solution with solar because solar works best during the day and geothermal works best at night and in the wintertime. So um, there's yeah. a lot of great um, compatibility there that, that will make a big difference for the future. Yeah, there's a lot of focus on wintertime, obviously, in Texas right now and a lot being done around, you know, uh, firm fuel and stuff like that. But it's really important those get written technology neutral or even with some kind of, um, you know, help potentially for geothermal because it could be a really big, important resource going forward um, all times of the year, but particularly in winter, which, as you mentioned, is a, is a big problem. Uh, last question I want to ask you, and I'll I'll ask you to... I, your your obvious answer is going to be geothermal and enhanced geothermal systems. So we'll take that as a given. But I, but I kind of want you to to you're you're a smart guy. You've been around energy for for a long time. You you've studied a lot. I'm I'm interested what you think might be one besides EGS. When we look back in ten years, what's one thing a a technology, a product, a service, a policy, whatever it might be that'll be widespread and in common use that will surprise people. This is a question I like to ask guests at the end. Oh, I don't know how surprised you'll be about this because I think you nerd out about energy issues um, as much as anybody. But but the uh, it's not a new technology. But I'll tell you, the make or break technology for the energy transition is transmission. If we, it doesn't matter if you're talking about nuclear or geothermal or wind or solar or battery solutions. It absolutely doesn't matter if we can't figure out how to build the right transmission lines to have a strong grid to move that power from point A to point B and, and, and diversify across these resources and, and make it happen. You know, we're not going to do anything in the clean energy mix. Um, I hope, I hope we build transmission. I hope it's not a big surprise. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's the farthest thing you can get from a whiz bang technology answer. Um, but uh, this is my current, uh, I'll, I'll use any platform I have to tell people about the urgent issue of, of, uh, figuring out how to build um, a strong, a strong grid and a great transmission, electricity transmission system. So that's my answer. Um, if we do it in 10 years, our lives are going to be a lot easier in terms of providing a clean, affordable, reliable electric grid. If we can't figure it out, man, are we going to have a hard time, uh, moving, moving forward with, um, providing the kind of electricity that society needs. It's a great answer. Hugely important aspect of the energy transition. Tim Latimer, thank you so much for being on the Texas Power Podcast. Appreciate you. Great. Thank you. Big thanks to Tim Latimer from Fervo Energy for joining us on the Texas Power Podcast. And thank you for listening. Please give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on the Texas Power Podcast from Renewable Energy World.